2: This is Ron Keel, and you're listening to Talking Metal. Crack it up!
0: Hey, it's John Astronomy. Welcome to episode 324 of Talking Metal, hanging out with Mark Striegel. Welcome back, Mark Striegel. Congratulations on the birth of your son.
3: Cool. thanks so much, John. It's uh, good to be back here on the Talking Metal podcast. I ran out to Best Buy yesterday, bought the new filter inspired by your great interview with uh, Richard. Great job on that. Really enjoyed it.
0: Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I had a great time hanging out with him, and it was really fun even putting the, the podcast together because uh, I had a chance to really listen closely to all of those stories, and it was one of my favorite interviews.
3: Cool. Well, I tell you, right now, let's get into a little keel. We have the one and only keel, Ron Keel, that is on the program today, a big Talking Metal fan, as you'll hear in the, the interview, so that was kind of uh, cool anyways one of my favorite keel songs from back in the day you know i love the stuff he did with Steeler, but uh we're gonna focus more on the band keel today on the podcast this is the right to rock by (laughs) keel
0: that was the right to rock by Keel and i too was a fan of Ron Keel from the steeler days because all of my friends were guitar players and they were ingve fanatics and uh, but then i was really psyched to hear that uh, keel
3: was being produced by gene simmons yeah and and ron is such a great songwriter and the one thing that was cool about those those early keel albums at least the right to rock, and I believe the final frontier too is, is Gene was not only the producer, but he contributed to the, the songs, the songwriting of the songs. And if you listen to songs like Easier Said Than Done, I mean, that's very, very Gene sounding. Um, and, uh, you know, Ron, Keel, and Gene Simmons really worked great together back on those, those Keel records. So do yourself a favor if you don't have the right to rock record. Go get it. It is uh, up on iTunes, and they recently re-released it, a 25-year anniversary type of thing, uh, which was sent to me. And so classic, so good, so much great hard rock on that record. He'll have a new record out called The Streets of Rock and Roll, and we're going to be hearing a little bit from that record later on in the show. Right now I want to get to a letter. This says, Hey, Mark and John, greetings from Toronto. My name is Lee McCormack, I've got. I've just got on board the Talking Metal podcast. I've been enjoying a lot of episodes, and I've heard John speaking frequently on the track he recorded for the Return of the Comet record, the Ace tribute. I also recorded a track for that record. My band's name is Moon Violet, but we recorded it under the name Lee and Dallas. Do you remember this guy? These guys?
0: They did an amazing version of Speeding Back to My Baby with a female vocal and a. Remember, it was kind of like a rockabilly kind of a tune, and uh, everybody who had something to do with that record and the production of the album thought their track was great.
3: Cool. Well, yeah, he goes on to say that he actually uh, heard through some sources that Ace really dug the track, so, uh, and he goes on to say it was a great feeling to pay tribute to a musical hero and have them not only hear the track but actually comment positively on it. Uh, And he goes on to say some other stuff about Eric Singer, Todd Haworth, and John Karabi. Anyways, uh, thanks for checking in, Lee. We appreciate your support. And uh, maybe one day we'll play play that track. Uh, We're kind of tight for time on this show, but um, maybe one day we'll play your version of Speeding Back to My Baby.
0: Yeah, Lee, thanks so much, man. It was great to get your email and really cool to hear from you because, uh, as I said, I've been a fan of that track from way back when, when it came in uh, to be submitted for that record. And uh, thanks again for the email, and thanks for listening to Talking Metal.
3: Cool. I wanted to tell everybody about a new rock and metal podcast. These guys have uh, promoted Talking Metal on their show, and I honestly enjoy the three or four episodes they have have put up. Uh, I believe Halford's on one of the, the recent ones. So you should check it out. It's called the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast, uh, ClassicRockPodcast.com. And a lot of good music and very informative. It's not it's really as loose as our show. It's, uh, you know, a lot of news packed into it. And I really enjoy the uh, the job they do. Again, that's the Classic Rock and Metal Podcast. You can check it out on iTunes and on at the website ClassicRockPodcast.com.
0: Yeah, it's really cool that you say that, Mark, because I was reading Blabbermouth, of course, today, and I was going back through the different news pieces, and I saw that Helvert was on the Classic Rock and Metal podcast. So, yeah, good luck to you guys. Thanks for listening to us, too. Yeah, definitely.
3: Let's get into a little more music right now. This is Wave of Babies by Animals as Leaders. I guess Wave of Babies would probably go good. i got two kids under two now at home. Anyways, this is a great instrumental band. I really enjoyed it. Uh, A friend recently turned me on to this band. So uh, you can download this on iTunes. Maybe we'll put a link up in today's show notes. And if you use those links, that helps support the Talking Metal podcast. Uh, It opens up your iTunes and takes you right directly to the song. So again, this is Animals as Leaders on the Talking Metal podcast.
0: That was Animals as Leaders with Wave of Babies on Talking Metal. Yeah, very cool tune. And uh, you know, Mark, I wanted to tell you about my amazing night last night. You want to hear about it? Yeah, fill us in. So Ace uh, did a show, kind of not really a show, more like a discussion. He was part of a panel at Carnegie Hall's Zankel Hall. Which incidentally, uh, the moderator or the I'm not sure what it's even called, not the moderator, but the guy who runs it is our good friend Jimmy Zankel from VH1, ex-VH1.
3: Yeah, yeah, I remember working with him back in the day.
0: Yeah, he's really cool. And um, so what happened was, uh, it was a great night. It was called Redemption Song, and it was moderated by. That, that's who the moderator was, uh, Henry Rollins which was really cool to hang with him. And the panelists were Ace, Steven Adler, Daryl McDaniels, you know, DMC from Run DMC, and Ricky Lee Jones, who had that really cool hit, "Chucky's in Love from 1979. And uh, I had a blast at it. Ace wound up playing New York Groove and A Little Be Lola Angels, which is a track from the Anomaly record, with Eddie Ojeda on guitar and uh two friends of mine on backup vocals lords and uh lords of course you remember her from uh, we did a couple of gigs with her her name is lords lane and she has a band called lords and then lords also wrote a musical that is coming you know to new york very soon <clears throat> And it's called Chick 6, and one of the cast members, her name is uh, Danielle Lee Greaves, and she is amazing. And both her and Lord sang backup vocals. And if you go to YouTube and search Ace Frehley and look for the most recent videos, you'll see that that is one of them. And uh, it's just a cell phone video somebody took, but it's pretty cool. And uh, the funny thing is is that Ace said, well, we need some crowd – participation in new york groove because there's no drummer and then steven adler jumped up and said hey what about me so he came out and there's no kit there but he just like stamped as hard as he could on the floor and it made like a, a noise and then everybody started clapping so steven adler provided uh percussion by clapping and stamping his feet on the floor uh ace and eddie played electric guitars on this they played acoustic on the first track and then some amazing backup vocals. And it was just a great fun night. And at the very end, you'll see me run out to grab Ace's guitar, which is funny. And uh, we just had a, a cool time. And it was really amazing, you know, to meet Steven Adler and to meet all the guests. But, you know, because we've you know met several of the Guns guys, but uh, never Steven Adler. So that was that was cool. And he was a really nice guy.
3: Sounds like a great time. I wish I could have been there. It's just, it's. I went to actually, believe it or not, one concert this this week. My first since uh, the baby was born. Saw Urge Overkill down at, uh, uh, Mercury Lounge, Um, Nash, Cato playing a uh, Paul Stanley Iceman.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Was it a black one? Like no, it was like a
3: white one. It was a white one. Man, that is totally cool. I love that band. I had the CD. With the U O on the front, saturation. That was the big one. Great album. Not really metal, but great hard rock and alternative record.
0: Yeah. What was the big hit off of that album?
3: Couple of them. There was a uh, positive bleeding, um, bottle of fur, night and gray, uh, Erica Kane. Were all pretty big songs. Uh, they didn't do. A, they they did a handful of old songs, but they they did a lot of new stuff too. I guess they have some new material coming out. I I actually would have preferred a little bit more of the classics, especially off of that album. But still, nonetheless, had a great time hanging out and uh, you know drinking beer all night.
0: Who did you go down there with?
3: I was down there with uh, with, Gar- with uh, Gary Carlin, who you guys all know is under the name uh, Bud Friendly, his alter ego, and uh, Dave Diametti.
0: Wow, that is great, man. Now, that's a concert I you know, of course, uh, I'm always excited to go to concerts, as you know, because we do a lot of that, but I'm, I'm getting around. I, uh, you know, when you go to a million concerts like we do to do interviews, you know, sometimes it takes, I hate to say this, but a little bit of the fun out of it, but Urge Overkill, that would have been a band that would have been totally into going and see.
3: You know what was fun about it? Because I thought, oh, you know, maybe I could get an interview with them for Talking Rock. And I was just like, no, I just want to go hang out, have a good time, you know. And and, uh, that's what I did. And and, uh, it was great. And then I got home at, you know, one in the morning. And my baby was, new baby was crying and my wife was yelling. And, (laughs) you know, I'm sitting there trying to deal with it. So... Probably would I probably would have done better with a few less less drinks, but uh, nonetheless, good time while I was there.
0: Yeah, I'm glad you got a chance to do that, Mark, because I know for like the last you know month and a half, like I, you've pretty much been you know just staying home, working, and you know taking care of your family.
3: No, that's the first time I went out since the baby was born, since August 27th. So there you go. Anyways, let's uh, get into our good friend here Ron Keel. What a great guy. It was a privilege to talk to this guy. I've always been a fan. I mean, all the way back to Steeler, you know, and uh was was looking for this the classic Steeler record with with Engve on uh, iTunes and did not see it. So, I don't think we're going to play any of that today. Like I said earlier, we're going to focus on Keel and uh the music Ron put out with his band Keel. <laughs> and uh hear a nice little uh, interview. Actually, I think it checks in at like twenty five thirty minutes. That's great. I really uh, wish I could have been part of
0: that because I've been a huge kill fan, and I, I still have a lot of Kill vinyl. Like I have the the Right to Rock on, on vinyl and The Final Frontier. Yeah. I have that on vinyl, and like I said, I've been a, a kill fan since the Steeler days, and then I was so psyched to hear about the relationship with Gene Simmons and, of course, you know, back in the day, I was buying, like, every Kiss-related product. But I would have been into the Kill stuff even if he wasn't working with Gene. But uh, I remember, easier said than done. Like, I mean, that is such a Gene-related
3: title or a Gene-inspired title. And, you know, what a cool relationship. Cool. This is Electric Love, one of my favorite songs off the Right to Rock record. And after the interview, we will hear some brand-new music by the band Kiel, which is essentially... The classic lineup that they really, I guess, always had, minus the bass player. We'll get into that in the interview. Here it is, Electric Love, and then we'll hear from Ron Keel. Guys, on the line, we have the one, the only Ron Keel. Ron, thanks so much for calling in to Talking Metal. It's great to speak with you.
2: Oh, thank you, Mark. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you. I'm a big fan, actually. I have your commentary from my VH1 special, uh, The Least Metal Moments. Uh, I have your commentary memorized, and uh, I watch it all the time. And and the the Talking Metal podcast is uh, the top of the, the pile, so I'm really proud to be on the show with you today.
3: Awesome, awesome. That's great to know. I, I've been a fan since the, well, I guess since the Steeler record, actually. I was going to say the Right to Rock record, but um, going way back to Steeler, which I want to talk about all that great stuff. And uh, well, let's, let's, let's start going back to 2008. Uh, not that long ago, but you guys had had, I guess, over a 10-year break at that point. What sparked the reunion of Keel?
2: Well, the guys and I remained friends through the years, and uh, that was the key factor. The fact, the fact that we, we stayed in touch, we worked on various musical and business projects together, and uh, there was a real camaraderie and a brotherhood amongst us, and so we talked about it all the time. I mean, it was always uh, there was a possibility in 98 when we got together for Back in Action that maybe we would uh, crank up the machine again, but did that, that was just really just a family reunion to put the finishing touches on some old unreleased masters and uh, give that out as a gift to our fans. But uh, in recent years, the talk started heating up. Every winter, we'd get together and think maybe next summer we'll do it. And uh, The release of Lay Down the Law in 2008 by Stradmill no Records really was the catalyst, I think. Uh, that and the fact that uh, events like Rocklahoma and some of these other big festivals were giving bands like us an opportunity to get back out there and do it the way it was intended, on the big stage in front of big crowds. Um, we never wanted to put Keel back together and do a little bar tour. I know right. a lot of bands do that, and I play a lot of bars myself with a lot of different kinds of music. But Keel belongs on a big stage, and we decided a long time ago that we weren't going to do it unless we could do it right. And uh, all the the factors came together in 2008 for us to to allow us to do that. The opportunity to work with a, a booking agent uh, like Sullivan Big, who was a big Keel fan, he represents bands like Great White and Kick and a lot of our uh, contemporaries. And he's a big Keel fan. He was encouraging us to do it. He promised us, if you put the band back together, I will get you on these big stages. And uh, the fact that it was 25 years exactly since the release of The Right to Rock and uh, Laid on the Law, and and, uh, we thought it was the right time, and it couldn't have happened better for us. Uh, So uh, we put it in high gear and uh, put the band back together. did some very successful shows last year, starting with uh, a headline performance in Hollywood, back where it all started.
3: Very cool, very cool. I mean, you guys were you know we'll get into the history in a bit but uh i was going to say you guys to me were always one of those very first kind of uh bands to just rock the sunset strip and and at least you know you with steeler and keel for that matter r- really represented you know kind of one of the the founding fathers of the whole 80s metal movement back then but we'll talk more about the history uh, let's let's talk about contemporary times at this point the new record, which came out earlier this year, Streets of Rock and Roll, is, is sounding great. And uh, you guys really stuck true to the, the keel sound that you guys had developed back in the 80s. Was there a conscious effort to stick to the, the classic keel sound and not update it with you know the, the, the grungy sounds that a lot of the, uh, the bands from back in the day have done on their newer releases?
2: Well, you know, music's got to come from the heart, and, uh, you know, I've, I've explored some other genres, as you know, but uh, modern rock, grunge, that's not, that's not my forte. It's not, I, it, I would be a fish out of water if I tried to do something like that. Um, there was actually no conscious effort, and that's what was cool about it, is we didn't even intend on doing a new album when we got back together. We just wanted to do some shows put a big explanation point on our career, have some fun with the fans and the music and each other. And, and really, it was just a, a to- totally motivated out of, uh, of that desire. We had no new songs. We had no intentions of creating new music. But at the first rehearsal, it, it started to pour out of us. And uh, Brian and I had been working on some songs for TV and films. And uh, for the TV and film genre, you really have to overemphasize the cliched lyrics and the anthem of 80s metal. When you're doing an 80s metal type of song for a TV show or movie, they want all the classic cliches, both musically and lyrically and vocally. And Brian and I had worked on a couple of songs, uh, hit the ground running, and looking for a good time, which were geared for TV and films. But when we finished them, it was obvious to Brian and I, man, these are kill songs. I mean, these sound like kill songs to me. So at the first rehearsal, Mark started pouring out a few riffs. Some Hell or High Water, uh, Devil May Care started to come out. And all of a sudden, we're sitting on four songs that we thought could be the foundation for a new album. And then we decided, well, you know, let's consider this option. Uh, let's put the pedal down and, and try and write together and see what happens, make sure we still got the magic. And, man, it just started pouring out of us. It was like 20 years of uh, of that emotion and that 80s metal attitude just uh just came to life, and the songs, it really was the most inc- incredible creative storm I've ever had in my life. The most fun I've ever had. I mean, we collaborated more on this album than we ever did back in the day, even though we don't live in the same town. A lot of that's due to the technology. We could write a riff or a lyric or a vocal and put it on our phone and send it to the other guys immediately and kind of interact right. with Skype on We would rehearse and, and write songs over the computer and the webcams and stuff, so that was a big help, but really it came from the heart, and the uh, the writing process, the recording process, we didn't have any conscious effort. We didn't say, hey, let's be like this, or hey, let's be old school. We just poured out songs, and they came out sounding like heel songs. It was a very natural and fun and comfortable process. We didn't, uh, the, only, the only thing we had to prove, it was different back in the day. Back in the day, we were hell-bent on making it. We wanted platinum on the wall. We wanted you know sports cars in the garage, and we had, uh, a whole different set of goals. This time out was all about the music. We're all older now. We all have the, the cars and the houses, and you know we've had uh, a lot of a lot of dreams come true. But this this album was something that we wanted to to please ourselves first, and look back on it ten years now and say ten years from now and say, yeah, we did the right thing. I love this. I'm proud of it. And then hopefully the fans and people like yourself and people in the media would would get it. And uh, that has been the most complimentary response that I've received uh, from the fans and from the media, is that we stuck true to our roots, we stayed old school, and made a, a classic 80s metal album that could have been released in 1987.
3: Right, yeah, uh, definitely. The
2: recording process was the same way. I mean, we, don't know, we only know one way to make a Kill record. We went in and did it just like we did it back in the day, and uh, with very little bells and whistles and modern technology and, and stuff like that. It was really from the heart.
3: Yeah, very cool. Um it, it we're going to play some music off of the uh the release, the brand new, well not brand new, the somewhat new release in just a bit. But um I just wanted to touch on what you were saying about, you know, collaborating over the computer and I mean it it's just amazing to think that that's, you know, the technology allows us to do this and it uh it led me to to the question, are you guys spread out throughout the country now or are you still based in kind of the same area?
2: Yes, we are. I'm in Las Vegas. I've been in Las Vegas for the last four years. Mark and Brian both live in Los Angeles. Our drummer, Dwayne Miller, lives in Phoenix, and our bass player, Gino Arce, lives in Columbus, Ohio. So we are pretty spread out. It costs us a couple of grand just to have a beer. Wow. <laughs> wow.
3: And Gino, you mentioned, he's uh, somewhat new to the to the fold, at least compared to everybody else. Where did you uh, hook up with him?
2: Man, I've been playing with Gino since 98, about 12 years now, and he's been in several bands of mine, most notably Iron Horse. And uh, when Iron Horse was on the road, we did a lot of gigs, about 700 shows in the you know the earlier part of the, this decade, um, from 2000 to 2006. And when we were passing through LA on tour, I guess it was like around 2000, yeah, like two, 2003 now, a long time ago. But uh, we're passing through LA, and I called up Mark and Brian, and uh, asked them if they would come out and just do a little mini Keel set because Iron Horse was playing all the Keel songs in our show anyway. We were doing because the night. Here's a Fire, Right the Rock. I mean, we're, we've been playing all that stuff uh, in almost every band I've been in through the years. So Mark and Brian came out and got on stage and did a little keel set with us. Uh, Gino played bass and uh, it just felt great. And he, he got to know Mark and Brian a little better. So when it was time to put the band back together to do the reunion, they had uh, played with Gino. They knew him. They were comfortable with him. And I've been with him for over a decade. He's one of my best friends in the whole world. Uh, so... Uh, when the time came to do the reunion, it was pretty obvious voice that Gino should should take the bass position. Um, Kenny's uh, no longer in music, and he's right. dedicated to his family and his job and all that, and, and we understand that and wish him the best. He's always going to be part of the brotherhood and a, a, a member of Peel, as far as we're concerned. But, you know, you got to have a new guy in the band. you got to have somebody to poke fun at and somebody to make, make him sit in the trunk of the car and carry all the luggage and the guitars. It's not just kidding. Yeah. Uh, Gino brings a lot of excitement. It's cool having a new guy who's experiencing this for the first time, and and he gets to be in Keel. To him, it's a dream come true. And it's fun just to see the excitement, everything that we do, and and throughout the recording and the writing and the rehearsing and the traveling and the shows, to to see the excitement that, that he's feeling and experiencing fires us up. So it's cool having him on board.
3: Excellent. Now going way back uh to the Steeler days, that first or, well the only Steeler record for for that matter, I, I just always loved that record. The thing I loved the most about it was the songwriting. It, you did most of the songwriting
2: on that record, right? I did write all of those songs except one, uh, which was a collaboration with Ingve. Um and yeah, man, I'm really proud of that. Now looking back, what, 28, twenty eight? Twenty 28 years? Something like that. Yeah. Twenty seven years. It's been 27 years, and that that is a classic uh, 80s metal album, a cornerstone of the genre. Uh, it was obviously the first album for me, and the first album for Ringo Lamont And the combination of my songs and his guitar playing, uh, I, I think, was magic. Uh, it's unfortunate that we couldn't stay together and capitalize on that magic. But yeah, what happened? He left and, the and band. Immature.
3: He left the band before the album even came out, or something like
2: that. That's correct. Yeah, he he left to join Alcatraz. Uh, and, you know, the rest is history. It never was the same after that, but uh, it, it was cool that we shared that time, that we collaborated on that album, and that that record still lives on to this day. And at one point, it was the biggest-selling independent record of all time. It really put us wow. on the map. Wow. It put me on the map and gave me the impetus and the, the ability to put Keel together. It certainly gave Bay the ability to go out and do all the accomplishments that he achieved after that, and, and the record company, Shrapnel Records, is uh enjoyed a lot of success in the, in the time since as well. Do
3: you ever hear from any of those guys, Engve, Rick Fox, or Mark Edwards?
2: All of them, actually. Yes. Really? Uh, we we actually just did a deal a couple of weeks ago. Some hip-hop DJ, I forget his name, DJ Shadow or something. He's like some big, right, you know, yeah, this, I've, I've heard of him. in that genre. And he licensed the, the song uh, Backseat Driver." for wow. one of his hip-hop songs. I forget the name of it. We're going to start promoting it when it comes out. But we all had to get together and do the deal for that. Mark and, and I are, are, are very good friends and see each other from time to time. He is a very successful, like, billionaire businessman. He's got, like, two jets of his own. He flies over to Hong Kong really? and takes over companies and stuff. And he's literally hes a, a huge business mogul. He's been on the cover wow. of the Wall Street Journal. I mean, he's a huge success. Rick Fox is still a good friend of mine. I talk to Rick all the time. Um, I love that about this business and about my life and my careers. I've I've managed to stay friends with just about everybody that uh, I worked with. There's a few guys that you know got a chip on their shoulder or a bad attitude, and I don't have time for that. But I treasure those friendships and those memories and, and uh, those relationships that uh, have stood the test of time.
3: Cool. Now, a few years after Steeler, you hooked up with the one and only Gene Simmons, and. Uh... Put out the "Right to Rock" record that you worked on. I guess a lot with Gene because he was involved in not only the production, but didn't he do some of the uh, songwriting with you guys?
2: Actually, yes. Gene contributed three songs to that record. It all happened so fast. Literally, we were finishing "Lay Down the Law" in San Francisco when I got the call from our management to go back to L.A. to showcase for some of the major labels. And,
3: and "Lay Down the Law" we was was lay, "Lay Down the Law" was was that unshrapnel?
2: It was. right on the law was on the records, but it wasn't even finished yet when we got our record deal, and all of a sudden the label says, you know, we want to we want to put out an album in January, and this is like August September. I mean, th- things happen really quickly. They gave me a list of potential producers, and I looked at the list. I can't tell you who others. There's all the heavy hitters in the '80s the metal right. genre. And Gene Simmons' name was on the list of potential producers. I said, I want Gene. Hook it up. Make it happen. So I went to the Beverly Hills Hotel and met with Gene, and we didn't have any new songs, because we were still finishing up Late on the Law. So we were in songwriting mode. We were finishing up our, our debut album. Um, we had uh, one piece of music without any vocals on it, and I had that on a cassette. I put it in the boombox in Gene Simmons' hotel room. The day I met, and it was The Right to Rock. And I sang it to him face-to-face, just got in his face and spit it out. Wow. And he hit... Did- off on the, the boombox and said, I'm going to produce this record, and we're going to start Tuesday, because he had to go on Tour with Kiss. So all of a sudden, we're in high gear, and we, all of a sudden we got a record deal, Gene Simmons is producing, we're starting Tuesday. We had no songs. Yeah. So we we've had the right to rock, which was the only song we had. Um, I wrote three songs in one night, I believe it was uh, Back to the City, Electric Love. Uh, we uh, redid three songs from late on the law: it was Speed Demon, You're the Victim, uh, I forget the other one. Um, and then Gene had these songs left over from, uh, the, I believe it was the Animal Eyes sessions. Okay. And they did, they did make the cut onto the new Kiss record, but they were certainly, uh, I mean, easier said than done. So many girls stole a little time. Uh, so yeah, he, uh, he, he was a big influence on us. Obviously Gene Simmons' involvement with peel was, was huge because it gave us instant credibility. It gave us an instant fan base. I mean, all the Kiss fans went out and bought it just because Gene's name was on it. Sure, sure. So, right. uh, it was, it was Gene's, Gene's influence on our career was huge. Uh, he obviously is a, is a always a full time member of our family and uh, can't thank him enough for what he did for us. And, and not only in the business sense, but as a friend and as a mentor, uh, he taught us a lot about how to make a great record. And Gene will admit to you now that he didn't really know what he was doing because he, he he was new to the producing thing. Uh, he was just kind of making his way through it, but the guy's got all the confidence and balls in the world and he's. He, he just uh, made the call. He, he he played it from from his heart, uh, like like we did, and we worked really well together. He was Gene's he, presence was still felt on the streets of rock and roll sessions. It was like he was looking over our shoulder and what would Gene do right now? He taught us two very valuable lessons about how to make a great record. One was be totally prepared and rehearsed when you hit the studio. Have every kick pattern, every every bass line, every rhythm progression all the different voicings of the chords be ready when you get to the studio but he also instilled in us the ability to improvise and change something if you're in the studio and you you, you want to make an adjustment you want to play you want to try something don't be afraid to do it you know don't just stick to the rehearse patterns. um i remember we we're doing because tonight and all of a sudden we've been rehearsing it for months and all of a sudden in the studio gene stops and says hey i want to put a bridge here after the uh after the breakdown, I wanted you know, chunk chunk here and drum pattern here. We just actually wrote that bridge on the spot in the session. So that was uh, a great lesson that he taught us too: is to never be afraid to try stuff. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Um, but be prepared when you, when you hit the studio. And, and a lot of lessons about harmony, song structures. Uh, you know what what the fans want because Gene knows what the fans want. He's been giving it to them for how how long. Uh, so we can't uh, can't thank him enough for his contributions to to our life and, and our career and, and uh so yeah he's a uh, big influence on it. he produced the following album Yeah it was after the, the final frontier off the, off yep. the Final Frontier. And uh that was uh, certainly a very successful uh effort for us in nineteen eighty six. It was our highest charting album with a couple of hit singles because of the night, Tears of Fire so uh, yeah Gene, Gene was a big part of Keel. Very cool.
3: And do you so ever it. hear from Gene anymore?
2: We do, yeah I got to spend some time with him but he came through Vegas. He was doing his solo show. It was uh what do you call it, it's kind of like a big band kind of thing. Uh, it was pretty interesting, and uh, they were filming for his reality show, and, and I got to sit backstage, just the two of us, and we kind of rehashed our our, our old days, and, and uh, he sent us uh, a message upon the re- reunion, uh, wishing us well. He still won't take us out as an opening act, but he wouldn't do that back in the day either. Uh, we were always pushing him. gee, put us on the bill, man. Put us yes. on the bill. We want to play with kids. We never did. You know, I can't count how many people come up to me and say, Hey man, I saw you open for Kiss in 86. Dude, it didn't happen. we right. never, ever opened for Kiss. We hammered on him hard, but he wouldn't cut loose. Interesting.
3: Now back in the mid nineties, I guess 96, I was actually working at MTV at the time. Uh, and, um, we put together a show called, uh, it came from the eighties and, it, and you were kind enough to actually, you shot it yourself, and you and you sent it in to us. Uh, you were sitting, I think, on the back of a pickup truck with an acoustic guitar. Oh, yeah, guitar. the
2: famous, infamous pickup truck scene. I will never live that down, dude.
3: <laughs> and uh, it, was just, it was just perfect. And that was my first introduction to you as Ronnie Lee Keel. Do you still perform under that name, and what's kind of the history behind that? Have you released albums under that name?
2: Well, yeah. I mean, that's a long story, um, but... I know that you know because I, I am very familiar with your quotes and your commentary, as I said at the beginning of this interview um in fact i w- I was watching it yesterday I've been using I use, it's on my one of my youtube channels and oh, wow. you know we've got that little v h one clip as part of part of my visual history and uh the you got to understand that when I was growing up, I grew up in a very musical house sure uh where there was no prejudice i was Fed a very healthy diet of from my mentor and my, my music teacher George Schmidt, who played jazz and classical music, and he was a, a trained, schooled musician, and he just incredible jazz player, still is, to this day. Uh, so I was getting the jazz and the classical from him. I was getting the country music from my mom and dad, and uh, the Johnny Cash and the Bill Haggard, and you know all that stuff. And I was getting the rock and roll from my older sister, who had a bunch of you know girlfriends, and they would come get together and listen to rock and roll. For, for me, growing up in the 70s, listening to the AM radio, there was, you know, I mean, you could literally hear the Eagles and Black Sabbath on the same radio station. Yeah, definitely. And so there was no prejudice. To me, I grew up not knowing, hey, it was a black, white, red, green. I mean, it was all colors to me. Where, you, where did you grow um, up?
3: Was it Los Angeles?
2: Um, I grew up all over the country. Actually, my dad was a construction worker. And, uh, I mean, there would literally be times when he would come in to the bedroom, wake us up. Say, wake up, we're moving. You get out of bed and you get in the car. The U-Haul uh, hooked up to the car, and you're going to the next town because he would move us uh, wherever the next job was. That's where we go. So I really did a lot of traveling. Uh, got that, uh, got the road in my blood at an early age. But I call Phoenix my hometown because that's where we settled uh, in when I was about nine. Uh, the construction business was booming in Phoenix, and I spent my formative years there. My first dad. Right my first girl, my first car, you know, all that. So that, that's kind of my hometown. I left uh, to go on the road. I left my my home and my, my family to go on the road uh, at the age of 15. So uh, that, that's home. I've had a lot of hometowns. It's certainly one of them. I lived there for 11 years doing the rock thing. Uh, Nashville, I, I went to Nashville when I was 17 to pursue a, a career in music. I went back there a few years ago and, and spent a few years in Nashville before my move to Las Vegas now, but i'm a I'm a musical nomad I've wandered the landscape uh, exploring new territories climbing new mountains you know I mean I'm never really happy in any one place or doing any one thing i like I like the, the next challenge or the next opportunity and I embrace those things but uh, after what happened in in the early 90s with uh, the the collapse or the downfall of of our genre uh, looking back on it now we can put it in perspective but man it was it, it really we really hit hit the, hit hard. Um, yeah, it, it hurt a lot of us. Some of my friends didn't survive. A lot of guys turned to drugs. You know, we, we buried a few friends along the way. Uh, there was no place to turn. All of a sudden, it wasn't cool to be us anymore. Uh, we thought we were rock gods. We thought it was going to last forever, man. And, and to, to have all of a sudden to be you know, a living, breathing version of Spinal Tap was painful for a lot of us. Um, I was lucky that I had had that background in country music because I had a soft place to land. All I needed to do was grab a guitar and write some songs. And I could fulfill myself creatively. I could sing now now that I was older and I'd had my ass kicked. I'd been divorced. I'd been to jail. Um, I'd, I'd been homeless. I'd been broke. And I'd been through all this crap that country music was singing about. When I was a kid, I didn't get it. Uh, I was more into the, the excitement and energy and sexuality of rock and roll. But... that. that uh, ability to sing about true life experiences that country music offered me literally saved me. And uh, not only could I find that it was fun, because it's party music. It's all about drinking and chasing women. I mean, it's party music. Uh, it's a good time. You know, you want to kick up your heels and have a beer kind of thing. And, right. and it was fun. I was having fun with it. Um, I, was just, I was really good at it. First of all, let me say that, and I've said this over and over again throughout the course of this and other interviews, you can't just put a cowboy hat on a beat country and get in front of 2,000, you know, shit kickers, they're going to throw beer bottles at you, and you're going to die. It's got to come from the heart. You don't fake that shit any more than you can fake being a heavy metal singer. This this keel thing, it comes straight from the heart as well. Uh, you can't get on stage in front of 10,000 people in an arena, hold them in the palm of your hand, and make them put their fists in the air and yell the right to rock if it doesn't come from the heart. Uh, so anybody who thinks that I'm just playing roles or, you know, that my heart's not in it, they, they can kiss my ass because you can't do any of what I do if, it's, if it doesn't come from the heart. That's where my voice and my songs always come from. But that being said, I do like the different genres. I do enjoy jazz. I do enjoy classical music. Now, I'm not much on hip-hop. I'm not much on modern rock, you know, but I do have these other flavors that I enjoy and listen to and, and play from time to time so that uh, – you know, I never turned my back on the Metal Brotherhood, so to speak. Right. I never divorced Ron Keel. I just, uh, I needed to, to, to focus. I'm the kind of guy that when I'm in something, I'm in it all the way. Uh, and I, I devote myself to it. And that's the only way you can learn a new art form and, and immerse yourself in it and, and become good at it. Um, now I, I do both. And I do both throughout the course of a day. Uh, in wow. Las Vegas, there are so many opportunities. And I'll tell you a little story. I did four gigs in one day a couple of years ago. It was on Easter Sunday. I sang in church at 10 a.m. And then in the afternoon, I did an acoustic performance for a bunch of politicians, the mayor and all these people. I was just doing an acoustic country performance. At 7 o'clock, I did a country tribute show where I portrayed Ronnie Dunn from Brooks and Dunn in Country Superstars Tribute. Oh, country cool. show in Las Vegas. And then at midnight, I'm Ron Keel screaming my guts out at a Motley Crue oh, So In the course of one day, I went through all these different personas and characters. And I enjoyed the ability to do that. It rattles my cage a little bit sometimes. And it's, uh, it's a little overwhelming, but I do enjoy it, and I think I've become good enough at it to more I can switch gears at any time.
3: Yeah, and, and your voice has always been so strong. I mean, just the fact that you were able to play four gigs in, in one day is, is amazing when most people can only sing four songs before they, they go hoarse. Uh, how, how do you maintain your voice? Do you, do you still practice singing? Do you do scales?
2: Do you have... No, dude, I'm telling you, I don't do anything good for my blues. Everything I do, like this interview, is vocal suicide. I mean, I talk nonstop. I talk, I talk. I obviously you could tell. I talk right. a talk. <laughs> um, Talking is the worst thing for the voice. I don't sleep right. I don't eat right. I'm always running. You know, 80 miles a minute. Um, I don't. I do warm up. I had some training in, in the early 80s. Uh, I smoke cigarettes. I drink whiskey and beer. Right. I'm not a tea and lemon kind of guy. But you know, I'm a firm believer, and this goes back to the heart again. The voice comes from the heart. Yeah. Where the heart leads, the voice will follow. When when it's time to sing, then you dig deep and you belt it out. Uh, it's it, you know I'm not a I'm not a classical trained singer but when, when I sing no matter what the genre or what the song I think the audience gets gets it that I mean what I'm saying and I deliver the song and, and try and sell the song and, and put myself inside it um, and I just you know there's I've been very blessed that uh, I think the fact that I'm always working has has uh, helped me I, I, yeah because some guys I mean you take a few years off I can't imagine having to to start over but I've never stopped I've continued to do two three hundred shows a year at least throughout my entire career so I think that's one factor that's enabled me to keep up the pace
3: cool and you mentioned uh, doing some work on the stage there like a tribute show in uh, in Las Vegas is that something that you do a lot of uh, stage work in Las Vegas
2: well I uh, you know I was with iron Horse we would spend uh, you know months on the road and then we'd have months where we weren't on the road. We were sitting home, and I can't. I can't sit still for long. Man, I tell you, the whole time I've been talking to you, I've been pacing around my house. I cannot nice. sit still; it just kills me. Uh, so, we we've been on the road, and we've been seeing these these tribute bands, which were kind of a new thing for me. I hadn't been exposed to that aspect of it. Uh, where you know these these tribute bands are out there, and they're they're doing good business, they're making money, they're packing the house. And I was going, well, you know, people used to tell me that I I sounded like that Ronnie Dunn guy from Brooks and Dunn, whatever I was doing my country thing in the nineties. I enjoyed their music, I became a fan. I like their rowdy rock and hockey talk style and, and I like his voice. he's a very strong tenor uh with the, well, probably the best tenor in country music history in my opinion and well, I, I would learn their songs because I liked them and like put them in my act and uh, so I knew a large part of their catalog and uh but obviously, I didn't look like him. I had to uh, to undergo a pretty major transformation. I had to cut my hair for the gig, which was the hardest part of part of it all. I still do from time to time. I mean, I've got to get a haircut tomorrow. Right. I hate that. But, you know, i got to take the role seriously. It is a great show, and I've, I've, I I've enjoy stepping out of my shoes, and it's like, like an acting role. And it's a big, biggest production. It's all country superstars tribute. I don't do it all the time. Uh, I am the featured performer and the star of the show, but i got to make time for my other projects. When Kiel's is my top priority. For instance, uh, we're going to to Phoenix to play with Queensryche on Halloween, and you know I'll oh, be excellent. off that night. Um, by my schedule changes, the show runs Tuesday through Saturday. I'm in it whenever I can participate. I enjoy doing that. I'm in the show tomorrow night. I actually have two gigs tomorrow. And, and is that at but, one of the uh, big casinos
3: there on the strip?
2: It is at the Golden Nugget. Golden Nugget. Okay. Yep. Down on Fremont Nugget Street. In there, Las yeah. Vegas. We just signed a one-year contract. It's, it's pretty amazing. And I created the show. I, I produced the show. Kind of turned that over to my partner and he's in control now. And I'm just a, a featured performer because of my busy schedule, but uh, it's kind of cool that I created it, produced it, and, and it's actually become the most successful country music show in Las Vegas history. Uh, it's been running for three years now in several different venues, and uh, that's, that's another aspect of my career that I'm really proud of, to, to accomplish that. I mean, it, it's not easy. Vegas is cutthroat. There are a million performers and shows just killing each other and to, to get into one of these showrooms and to uh, to try and, and generate an opportunity, it's it's literally, it's, it's it's brutal. And to have the success that we've had and uh, to be still standing strong as the only country show in Las Vegas, I think it's a great accomplishment.
3: Yeah, and the, it's. I was at the Golden Nugget, uh, I guess like three, four years ago, right after they remodeled it. It is a great hotel. They've, they did a great job. Yeah. They got the the pool out there, the shark tank that you can, there's a slide that goes through it. It's a, It's a great hotel. So guys... Definitely, if you're in Las Vegas, check out Ron Keel's show and check out the Golden Nugget. Uh, uh, You'll have a blast for
2: sure. Absolutely. Thank you for that. Uh, it's it's a beautiful hotel, and yeah, the swimming through the shark tank is pretty cool.
3: Yeah, no, I, I enjoyed that when I was out there. And uh, anyways, Ron, it's been great having you on Talking Metal. I, I'm I'm thrilled that you knew who we are and and you've listened to the podcast and seen us on television. That's that's very cool oh, to absolutely. know. Absolutely, because I've been absolutely. a fan of I'm yours. I'm a big
2: fan, and, and when I found out that we were talking today, you, I got really excited. I appreciate the opportunity to talk to you, and and thank you for giving me the the chance to expose some of my life and my music to our fans.
3: Well, we're going to get into some brand new or fairly new keel music off the Streets of Rock and Roll record right now on Talking Metal. Ron, what would you like to play for the, uh, the listeners?
2: Uh, play the whole album. The whole album. <laughs> <laughs> um, man, I, I think uh, the title track does it all. You know, track one, the title track is, uh, is kind of the, the story of where we've been and how we got back to where we are today.
3: Excellent. Ron, thanks so much. I really, really appreciate it. And like I said, I've been a fan since way back when. The Right to Rock is one of my favorite records of all time. I really, really
2: had fun talking with you Yeah, I really appreciate that. I I apologize for throwing you a few curveballs along the way with the changes in style and all that. But uh, I'm I'm glad that you're still here doing what you do, and I'm glad that I'm still here doing it as well. And and, uh, it's been great talking to you.
1: So tough you could lick them, yes Just take it from the top This time you'll never stop You know that's right Well, you're 6 th-
3: Go on iTunes and purchase "The Streets of Rock and Roll" by Keel, or go buy the CD. I'm sure you can find that online. Just uh, Google "Keel Streets of Rock and Roll." I'm looking at it; it definitely is up on iTunes, and it's 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 a great sounding record. I really enjoy the new Keel record, "Streets of Rock and Roll." You mentioned um, Henry Rollins.
0: Yeah, it was really an honor for me to meet Henry Rollins, and, and one of the things that I thought was great about him is that he sat everybody down in this dressing room and went through the program, and it kind of reminded me of like what we did when we were trying to do the Talking Metal show. We, not trying, we did, we did do it, but uh, Henry was such a pro, and, and he knew how to handle a TV show and how to handle questions and how he was going to handle audience questions, and he he was really great at doing that moderator gig and uh he was just a really nice guy and he was he was a fan of uh speaking you know of metal he he was he told a great story about going and this was like backstage he told a story about you know the first time he saw Guns N' Roses and, and they were opening up for Red Hot Chili Peppers at a college uh and this is when you know like this is way before Guns was signed and and he just said when they came in there and he he said they looked like a cross between like Aerosmith and the Sex Pistols and he said that they were just they they just killed he said they they were unbelievable and he said at that point he he said this band is going to be huge yeah
3: and i know i've heard him talk about uh you know just real pure great metal like he was a big fan um again still talking about Henry Rollins here a big fan of Black Sabbath, Dio-era Black Sabbath. I know he was a big fan of that, and he actually did some work with uh, Tony Iommi. And on that note, maybe we can end today's show with Henry Rollins and Tony Iommi. It's so funny you mentioned Rollins, because just the other day this song popped up on my iPod on, on the shuffle mode, and it's, it's a great track, classic Rollins vocals, and, and the classic Tony Iommi sound on the guitar. It's called Laughing Man. And it is not on iTunes as far as I can tell, but it is on the Tony Iommi album, the first one that he put out, the first solo album, It's just uh, simply titled Iommi from 2000. So definitely check this, that album out. Uh, I believe you probably can still get it in the stores. And this is Laughing Man in the Devil Mask by Henry Rollins and Tony Iommi. Thanks everybody for listening to this episode
0: of Talking Metal and special thanks to Ron Kill for doing the interview and also for being a talking metal listener. Right now, this is Henry Rollins and Tony Ile.